Elliot Ackerman. Listen, you don't want to be the one to start a war necessarily. You want to be the one to finish a war. I had to keep reminding myself that it's fiction, right? We have the ability to level our adversaries. They have the ability to level us. There's going to be this cyber warfare. And I, I can agree that I think it feels like we are in a cyber cold war, especially with China. All right, welcome back, you beautiful bastards, to another episode. Uh, this week, Grizz, we've got someone pretty cool to talk to. Um, why don't you introduce him? Tell him who we're talking to. Uh, well, this week we have Elliot, Elliot Ackerman. Uh, he is the co-author of 2034, The Next World War. Um, Elliot, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the podcast, guys. Awesome. Oh, th thanks for being here. And, uh, you know... <laughs> I came across your book before I really knew that we were going to have you on the podcast, which is, you know, that was why I decided to contact you and see if you wanted to come and talk about it. I, I think it kind of struck a nerve with me, uh, you know, 2034, because I'm always harping on people, Grizz specifically, about technology, the crazy things that are going on with it, and the crazy things that people like Grizz are allowing to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I guess I kind of just wanted to start with, you know, how do you go from the war zone to the writer's desk with something like that? Because you, you came from uh, the Marines, right? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was uh, a Marine Corps officer for about eight years. I was an infantry officer and a special operations officer. You know, I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, now I'm a writer. So it's right. funny, you know. Uh, a lot of people will ask me that, like, hey, it seems weird. Like, you were this sort of, you know, action guy, and now you spend all your time, you know, sitting at a desk, you know, writing books. <laughs> um, you know, and are sort of this, like, you know, like in a more artistic career. Um, but the people who've actually known me the longest since I was like a, you know, burnout skater kid uh, many, many years ago have actually said, you know, we always thought it was funny that you wound up in the Marines. Like being a writer seems to like make a lot more sense. You That's know, how it always goes. About you. So I only bring that up because I think like, you know, like we all have uh, different sides of our personalities, right? You know, like Whitman says, we all contain multitudes. So, right. um, so that's sort of why I'm doing this, you know, how I kind of slid into that profession, you know, just engages with a different side of my personality. But you know, specifically to this book, um, this is my sixth book, but the first one that I've written uh, with someone. And so my co-author is uh, Jim Stavridis, a retired four-star admiral, who was uh, the his last job was he was the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, which mm -hmm. aside from being like the coolest job title ever, uh, <laughs> means he was in charge of like all uh, allied military forces all over Europe. But he and I uh, shared a editor at Penguin Press and we had actually known each other for about 10 years because we're both graduates of uh, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is like a graduate school for international affairs. So we knew each other as alumni of that school, shared a book editor, and he went to our shared editor with this idea, which was, you know, what like <clears throat> a, a novel that imagines what it would look like if the U.S. and China went to war primarily at sea uh, in the future. And that was kind of the kernel of the idea. And our editor said, like, well, you know, that sounds great. Um, you know, there, there's a history of those books in the Cold War, but none of them have been written about China. And like, aren't you and Elliot friends? Like, you should like work with a novelist. And, you know, this would make a lot of sense. And that's sort of how we transition kind of our friendship, uh, Gemini's friendship into being sort of a working relationship. Now, writing is kind of like, uh, it's like a really personal, intimate experience. Uh, I know a lot of people who've never really written anything out of high school. They don't really grasp, you know, what that process is like. What did you think of actually having to share that with someone for a book? Well, so sort of when the, you know, when the idea came up, like the first question was like, like, well, I don't know, can we, can we do this? Like, what's it, you know, we're friends, but like, what's it going to be like working with one another? Are we going to like want to kill each other? Um, so we said, well, listen, like, let's, let's try to write the first chapter. Let's see if like we can do that. And mm -hmm. so sat down, we kind of said, all right, how's this whole, you know, how's this, how is this situation going to start? What's like the precipitating incident of this war? We talked about it in like a great deal of detail, like really mapped it all out. All right, this happens and this happens. Who are the characters? Because, you know, the book is very much a character-driven book. There's like five principal characters in the book. It's like, who are these folks? How are they going to play in this first chapter? How do we meet them? So again, nugging out all those details. And we finally, and then we finally reached a point where like someone's got to sit down and write up the first draft. And so that someone was me. Uh, so I wrote up a first draft. I gave it to Jim. He then, you know, edits it, adds his stuff. And we kind of, you know, 
bat it back and forth between the two of us until we think it was think it's cooked. And so we did that with the first chapter. Like it was fun. We thought we wrote a pretty good opening chapter. She gave it to our editor. He liked it. And then we just wrote the book chapter by chapter by chapter the exact same way. I love the idea of the whole, without giving too many spoilers away, uh, cyber attack is a huge part of this book. Yeah. And it's definitely, you're starting to see a lot of that nowadays. Uh, we just had, um, what was the cyber attack we had on the oil company? I can't even remember the name of it. Yeah. So it was uh, like the umpteenth ransomware attack we've seen yeah. this year. And, and then more are coming, right? Yeah. And so we all know that if they're the next war, whatever it is, and if it's the next world war, that's going to be a massive part of it. So, and the big, the other, the other part of this book that's huge is the whole reliance on technology of today's, of the U S military anyways. Now, how much of that have you seen and how much of that did you influenced you in the writing of this book? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to keep in mind. So like, when we started this book, it was like March of 2018, you know, so, so, you know, we knew there was going to be a heavy cyber component, you know, we knew it was about China, but like, you know, you hadn't seen like the solar winds attack, you know, which was the biggest one recently, like when, which 400 out of the fortune 500 companies were hacked, I mean, a massive breach. We still, we still don't really understand. I would say we still have no clue how far that went. Yeah. Like the profound scope of that breach. We still don't totally understand. Um, so that hadn't happened yet. The pandemic hadn't happened yet. Um, so I would I would say that in writing this book, what was sort of interesting was, you know, we're like kind of imagining this alternate reality and our own reality is like probably catching up with it a little bit more, more quickly than we felt comfortable with. So, oh, yeah. you know, like the title of the book, 2034, right, is obviously the year all this happens. That wasn't, it wasn't like we like started on day one and the book was titled 2034 or we even had really had the date. We were actually, the very early drafts, we were like out in the early 2050s. And then we're like, yeah, this is probably feels more like 2040s and sort of like a <laughs> like a tide kind of like going up the beach towards our ankles. We're like, oh, it's like 2039. Like it kept getting closer and closer. And, and at a certain point we talked about the date so much. We're kind of like, you know, I think that's just the title of the book, 2034. Um, and, you know, the book's got a very nice reception uh, one criticism that it's gotten, which I think is actually a pretty legitimate one, is you know a, a number of you know China hands and others that said, "Hey guys, like we love the book, but there's one big thing you got wrong. Like this isn't 2034. Like this is 2029. Like this is happening way too quickly." And that was one. We've done an episode on whether or not how close we are to a war with China. And I mean, if 2020 brought anything out, it was the fact that it seems a hell of a lot closer than anyone thought it was. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because uh, it won't because you know you talk about cyber, it's um, it's not going to look like our other wars. No, you know? I think like one of the things we as Americans do, and we've done it for a long time, is we have certain like narratives that our wars sort of need to fit into. Like, I give you an example. I have this uh, when I was in high school. I read the Iliad. I remember like the teacher goes, hands out the copies on your desk. Here's the one you're going to read, and the copy of the Iliad that they gave me. It just said, I still have this copy. It just said in red letters, Iliad on the top. And there was a photograph of a bunch of uh, soldiers landing on Omaha Beach at D-Day, on D-Day. And it's always stayed with me because like World War II is very much like our American Iliad. Like it's our American Ur story, you know, that, that origin story of what it means to go to war as Americans. But like, you know, if we were to go to war with China, like it, it's not going to look like World War II. Uh, with no. huge invasion fleets and all this stuff, it's going to look very different. And I wonder if we're investing in like the deep type of imaginative work we need to do uh, to, you know, to be on the right side of that intellectual power curve. And so Jerry and I both worked in fields that in multiple ways had to deal with the U.S. military. And we've seen firsthand the reliance on technology and it scared the shit out of us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I know, I know your the co your co author Admiral, he definitely he was preaching the fact that they have a reliance on technology, but how many other people are? And, I, and he's retired now, so I hope someone else is toting that. Eggers, well, and it's tricky too, right? Because it's one thing to like preach and be able to intellectualize it, and I don't think you've got to be a genius to realize, like, hey, you know, when the big one starts, like the satellites aren't going to be there. You know, yeah, right. Be, we're going to take them all out. So it's where this works on a lot of levels. So first of all, 
in the military, like we're coming off wars. Like it's not like we've got a U the U.S. military isn't like has no combat experience. We have tons of combat experience. Um, but the problem is we have combat experience where we've been fighting for so like our satellites work, all our technology works perfectly because there's no countermeasures employed against them because our adversary is not sophisticated enough. So we yes. have we built up lots of experience, but baked into those experience those experiences are lots of like habits that would get us in trouble if we were fighting a peer level competitor. Like the assumption that, you know, oh, we just navigate on GPS. What a compass and a map? I don't know. I don't know how to use that. And the other point of this, and I'm sure you guys have seen it, is that it's one thing to be like, oh yeah, of course the satellites aren't going to work. It's another thing to like deconstruct an entire, you know, industrial, militarized industrial <laughs> complex that exists to build these satellites for profit and aircraft carriers and all these other systems. Like it's very difficult to roll that back because there's a lot of incentive into keeping those platforms um, up and financed. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough spot we're in, I think. Oh, I thought Jerry was going to go forward with that. No, I, I was letting you uh, continue to roll with it, Andy. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, uh, so Andy and I have seen firsthand the kind of the progression of uh, throughout, I would say probably from maybe the 1980s, Andy, because we've had our hands on that kind of technology right up through until the technology that we've seen coming down the road 20 years from now. And every step of the way, it's become more reliant on the technology that won't work if something like that happens. And it's it's pretty clear to us and me, at least anyway, I can't really speak for Andy, that if the satellites go down that that are running all this, just like you say, it's pretty much all a waste of time. But then I, that makes me wonder, you know, China, if we went to war with them, if they take the satellites down, everybody's back to ground zero, right? Yeah, but it's like, yeah, this is, I mean, this is the thing I love about fiction. And I love it. Like, this has all happened before, guys. Like, this isn't anything new. Yeah. This is right. like the history of warfare. Every time it's like, it's like, there's a story I love. Um, I don't know if you guys are history buffs. I kind of am. It's the battle. Yeah, of, we are a bit. Okay. The battle of Agincourt, right? It's fought in 1415 in France. So, a British a English army crosses the channel. They have a claim. They're going to go fight in France. And they're like way at the end of their supply lines. And they show up on this field, Agincourt. And on the other side of the field is like the creme, de, you know, and Shakespeare writes about this in Henry V. That's what the whole play is about, is the creme de la creme of the French aristocracy. All these noble knights, thousands of them. And they step onto that battlefield that morning with the most state-of-the-art technology that existed in 1415, which was heavy plate armor. Like being able to forge this heavy plate armor, it was, you know, totally revolutionary. It was like the, you know, the USS Fort aircraft carrier of 1415. And they're out there, they outnumbered the British, like they're going to just rock these guys. And the Brits outnumbered, sit there, it rains the night before, and the French knights, very like filled with kind of hubris, decide they're going to charge across the field. They run across the field in their heavy armor, they kind of get bogged down in the rain. And the Brits, who are outnumbered, much more lightly equipped, have a different have a different and very cheap weapon, which is the longbow. Mm. And they just start raining down these longbows on the French, and it goes through. It'll, it punctures their plate armor, and it's like it doesn't matter. Like yes, the French had the most state of the art technology. It was the wrong technology. Yeah, and it hindered them. It would, but it was the wrong technology, and it was more expensive than a longbow, and it was probably more complex to build and took more skill. But it didn't matter. Um, and so frequently, like we're so, we are so involved in patting ourselves on the back that like we might have the most excellent stealth, the most excellent precision munitions, the most excellent aircraft carriers. And maybe we do, but like, we don't spend a lot of time like saying, but is that like what we're really going to need? You know, like right. hmm, land-based cruise missiles, maybe make aircraft carriers not as relevant. Hmm. Are these man-made islands in the South China sea, basically just unsinkable aircraft carriers? Like, Huh, like how's this all gonna work? Yeah, and there's so many things that I see that I would love. I know the Marine Corps for one thing touts itself on tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And it's set in its ways, but at the same time, even the Marine Corps is making differences nowadays to where they're going towards technology. If you go back twenty years ago, when they were training people, they were all trained on steel sites or iron sites. Right. Now they're training people on ACOGs. Yeah. So now you've already you're you're losing that step. So now, well, all right. What if you can, what if your ACOG breaks and now we don't have a supply system to give you a new ACOG? Are these these new yeah. 
young, you know, Marines, are they going to be able to shoot with with iron sights? Yeah. Hopefully, well, I, I think, think I think they will, but I think it's interesting, right? Because it's like it gets this idea of like culture and organizational cultures, and frequently organizational cultures are monoliths. So, like you know, I'm a Marine, so I'll get a little parochial here for a second. Uh, when I was in college, I had like an internship for a couple, um, uh, a couple like summers and holidays at the Pentagon, and I was not like you know. I, I, back then I was a much more upstanding citizen, you know, I had the short haircut, the, you know, the, the midshipman uniform, and I was like basically a gopher in the Pentagon. So I like would just run documents around. And I don't know if you guys have spent much time there, but if you go up to the Pentagon, there's this, there's two corridors. There's one corridor called the Commandant's Corridor. In the Commandant's Corridor, there are oil paintings of every Marine Corps Commandant all the way back to, you know, Major Samuel Nichols, the first one in the, in the 18th century up to the present day one. And, you know, they're in there like, you know, dress blue uniforms, wearing their boat cloaks, like looking very marine-y. And then there's a corridor that runs parallel to that corridor. And on that corridor are just like photographs, like sketches of Marines in combat, you know, like some like 19 year old kid from like Nam with like, you know, the months of his tour on his helmet, like smoking a cigarette and he hasn't shaved for two days. So there's one, I remember there's one like a, a captain and he like maybe weighs 130 pounds. He's on Guadalcanal, like spotting an artillery strike. I always loved those two corridors in juxtaposition with one another because they, to me, always kind of represented um, the dueling nature of Marine Corps culture. The, the pomp and circumstance of what it is to be a Marine and the, yep. the tradition that I agree with you is just like really steeped into the organization and just like the kind of raggedy ass entrepreneurial, like we're raggedy ass Marines, like we're going to get this done, doesn't matter. Uh, and kind of like rebellious nature of Marine. almost primal, and those, right? And those two quarters, they can only <clears> exist <throat> in tandem. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I bring up the cultural thing with the Marine Corps because, like, yes, like the Marine Corps is very traditional and oftentimes high-bound organization. It's also the organization that intellectualized in the 1930s the amphibious operations that allowed us to run the war in the Pacific and led to like the D-Day landings and the landings in Italy. And I think you're seeing. I mean, I know you're seeing it right now in the Marine Corps. Is they're they're wrestling with. You know how do we intellectually get ahead of this? And they're not the they're not the only one, um, but all the organizations now are kind of trying to because you know people know like man like if we have to fight in the South China Sea like we're not going to do it with up armored Humvees. So what do we do? And you can see the organizations trying to turn, and it's painful. Oh yeah, it definitely. I would totally agree with that. And by the way, it's painful, and we don't know if we will be able to do it successfully. I mean, if there's anything. I love the book. The book was great uh, from start to end. If there's anything that I had to keep reminding myself that it's fiction, right? Because you're sitting there and you're always going to be sitting there going, well, how would it really go down? And I love the aspect that part of it is it's things that we have no clue. That, you know what I mean? It, we have to think that this is going to be a war that we don't know what the other side's going to bring to the table. We have no clue. It could be completely. I mean, look at right now. You have the government saying with this whole ufo thing we don't know if those are ufos we don't know what they're they could be russian as far as we're concerned that could be new technology that they've beat us on which is the united states we don't like that idea but that's a possibility sure elliot one of the things that i was really uh i'm not i just want to point out, i'm not actually done with the book yet i'm a, I'm a slow reader because i do so many other things but uh i'm wondering if do you think that the book is kind of predicting what is going to happen in the future in the same way that other books have predicted things like the Cold War and World Wars, things like that. The book is not supposed to be a prediction. It's supposed to be like a cautionary tale. So like our, right. like we're not trying to come here and say, oh, this is what's going to happen. We're saying like, hey, imagine if this happened. Like mm. it's crazy to think that this could happen. And, and hopefully like the act of imagining it, when you finish the book, you'll kind of be like, whoa, wow, that would be really bad. And I would argue that, you know, listen, if you look back at the Cold War, um, you know, we had a very rich literature, books like the Third World War by General uh, uh, Hackett, uh, like On the Beach, uh, movies like Red Dawn and right. uh, Dr. Strange. I mean, there was just this rich literature, <clears throat> I mean, like, you know, story, books, film, all imagining Rocky, Rocky Four. you know, if he dies, he dies. Like, you know, we <laughs> all had that in our culture. And we were constantly imagining this war, and there were very few things that the United States and the Soviet Union could agree upon, but one that we did agree upon was like, yes, we've imagined what this would be like, and we agree, neither of us wants this to happen. 
for a variety of reasons I can get into them. Like this hasn't really been imagined with China. Like there's not a lot of there's not a lot of folks. Like you know, we know that we have this sort of you know peer power that's emerging, but we're not talking about like what happens if we crash into each other. Um, and so I think the spirit of the book was saying like, all right, like we were gonna imagine, hopefully like start a, get a conversation going about, hey, let's imagine this so we can really start applying ourselves to avoiding uh, this type of a conflict because everybody would lose. And without spoiling the book, you'll see in the book, like, um, you know, one of the things that's fun when you write a book like this is baked into the book is a conception, right? You pick up the book, right. you know, it's about a war between the United States and China, okay? So as a writer, I'm like, you as the reader show up with this conception of, okay, well, that means like either China's going to win or America's going to win. Well, it's sort of boring if we just choose. And I think the book kind of subverts that and you see sort of neither of them win. Um, mm -hmm. Because, and this is, I think if you look back to history too, oftentimes like, listen, you don't want to be the one to start a war necessarily. You want to be the one to finish a war. In the United States, we used to finish wars. You know, we finished the first and second world war and we started neither of those wars. And an American century is what, American century is what followed. Now, unfortunately, We've gotten very good at starting wars, not so good at finishing them. Yeah, and that's actually uh, the the reason that I came, I asked that question is because I came across your book because over the last couple of years, as you know, the rhetoric between uh, China and the United States has been uh, maybe we can call it standoffish or may, almost aggressive. You know, they they at least politically and on the news they they're not getting along. They're at odds a lot, and so like an average citizen, I was never in the military. My thought was, well, what's going to happen if this goes beyond the rhetoric we're at, that we're at right now? And of course, then I came across 2034. I said, oh, this, this looks like, uh, you know, my possible future. I better read it, see what, what uh, this author thinks might happen. And uh, so I think for a lot of people, especially with uh, the things that they've seen in the news, your book could really... Uh, really hit home for them because it's actually it's very well written and it's incredibly plausible for me thanks yeah i think you know what we wanted to listen if you pick up the book you'll see you know there's there's no good guys or bad guys in this book um there's no like mustache twisting villains <laughs> uh you know one of the reasons we wanted to write a book and the book it's not some huge techno thriller doorstopper with legions and legions of characters so like every time there's a new chapter you go wait who is this and you like go into the appendix to figure out who the character is like there's really there's five principal characters you follow them into this world and we want it to be a character driven book because like listen ultimately when i was a marine this is what they taught you they taught you that the, the definition of war was that war is a contest between two opposing human wills and so if you're going to tell a real war story you obviously have to tell it's a story of the contest of human will so you got to tell a story that's about human beings about characters and so it's sort of driven by that and so there's no it's driven by that kind of character-based narrative so when each character gets onto the stage of the book and you're seeing it progress like you're getting the world according to that character like they're stepping onto the page as though it's a stage and they're making their case to you the reader as though they were making the case before god and that's in the case of the iranian character the chinese characters and so i think by the time you get to the end of the book hopefully you sort of see how regular people holding positions of power stumble into this war and it's kind of like you know the first world war the guns of august just sort of everyone is miscalculating and everyone is escalating and boom next thing you know um you know the whole world is on fire i think one of the uh probably one of the, the pieces of the book that's gonna hit everyone it hit me hard uh i think chaudhry was the character's name where he said america isn't the america it was before how much of that did you truly believe and how much of that was you were trying to set the, 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 the scene for everything? Yeah. I think the line in the book is um, the America that we think we are yeah, is we no think longer the America that we are, that, that we've become. Um, and I think the idea there is kind of this notion of like, like the stories we tell ourselves, right? I mean, listen, America every nation does this and we just talked how, how organizations do it but you know nations are ultimately organizations too we tell ourselves as americans lots of stories about who we are what we're about oftentimes those stories are kind of conflicting stories but i think what chowdhury is getting at is that there is this story we tell ourselves about americans about our uh our preeminence our exceptionality uh as though it's just a fait accompli and no matter what we do we are the indispensable nation 
Mm. And I think what Chowdhury is saying is that like, you know, the story we're telling ourselves is not actually in line with the reality anymore. And we're going to have to pay the piper on that. You know, do I, Elliot Ackerman, do I believe that? Does the Admiral believe that? I, I, don't, I don't know. I think, you know, one of the things you're doing in the book is you're kind of, you know, you're creating characters who are making arguments. Uh, and often those arguments are in conflict with one another to kind of leave ultimately I don't think you probably really care what I think. I think you care what you think. You know what I mean? And <laughs> oh, totally. And come up with what you think. So, um, so we try. I think we're trying to create a story that, like, leaves you know, you finish and you're and it leaves you thinking. And and uh, and then you know, it's up to you to to decide whether or not we are the America that we believe ourselves to be. Uh, one of the things that you got me with, and try not to release too many spoilers here. Uh, in the book, nuclear weapons are used, and you know. <laughs> at least for our generation, uh, Jerry and I both being millennials, we didn't see the Cold War, at least we were on the tail end of it. It's almost believed that it's something that America or maybe even other countries would never touch, right? It's a, it's a deterrent. It's just there, even though we have a, way too many of them. How... So reading it in the book, it was hard to put to place like, what would happen if an actual nuke was to set off in the United States and how devastating that was, you know? Yeah. Well, I think what happens when we started writing the book, and it's not really a spoiler because this kind of comes up, I mean, it comes up relatively quickly as it would in real life, um, right. which is, you know, China and the United States kind of get sucked into this cycle of escalation and they're, they're basically, you know, like trading hammer blows with each other. Yep. And then, um, and the, you know, in the U S basically we wind up getting, you know, knocked on our heels pretty hard in an unexpected way. So the question is, well, how do we respond? Because we don't have the ability to conventionally respond with conventional weapons as we feel we need to. And hey, we got all these nuclear weapons. Um, so as we were, you know, as the Admiral and I were kind of just like plotting this out, immediately, like, obviously, you know, if this is going to be a real conflict with a peer level conflict, the question of nuclear weapons is going to come up in short order. Um, Tactical nuclear weapons, because I think it's also important. The last time nuclear weapons were employed, right, was there was only, you know, there was only two, Hiroshima and yep. Nagasaki. There wasn't this idea that you were scaling. Like there was like a, you know, you know, where are you going to be on the volume meter of your nukes? So you see tactical nukes come out. And I think this is important because it does go back to the Cold War. You know, the United States, the theory of the employment of nuclear weapons in the United States in Europe was really, a lot of it was predicated on our, our acknowledging and accepting the fact that, listen, if if the Soviet hordes ever pour across the fold of gap into Western Europe, like the, the, the NATO, the allies will immediately be outnumbered. And we had developed in our, in our arsenals kind of low grade nuclear weapons that could, you know, knock out 10,000 Russians, uh, you know, 10,000 Soviet soldiers in one foul swoop. So kind of with that tactical mindset, we pull out the nukes and it's just at sea, just going to use them at sea, not on a, you know, not on target. You know, it's, it's just there just a little bit. And, um, and what you quickly see is that once you get on that ladder of escalation, um, things can get out of, get out of hand very quickly. People are misinterpreting, you know, nations are misinterpreting the actions of other nations. And then you start getting into questions. Well, if we pulled out the tactical nukes, are we going to start pulling out the strategic nukes? You know, and those are the doomsday weapons. Um, that, so that was my next question yeah. is how fast do you think it would really escalate in that situation? Cause I got to imagine if we were, if we've unlocked the key and we, you know, we've opened Pandora's box at that point, wouldn't it just be an all out wipe everything out? Well, you'll see, I mean, we, in the book create, you know, we have an, a situation of you see the ladder of escalation as it plays out in the book. I guess I would just say the book takes place over six months in the year it begins in March of 2034 and it ends in September. So, um, so that's sort of the time horizon that all this sort of tit for tat is, is occurring on. Um, but I think as you know, we today, when we think about, you know, a, the idea of conflict with a peer level adversary, because we've been out of the Cold War for so long, we don't think about the nuclear weapons. And we also fail to acknowledge that the deterrent regimes that existed in the Cold War, you know, like the very careful negotiations where we knew how many that they had, they knew how many we had, we knew where they all were, like they kind of don't exist. Now it's sort of the wild west. And oh, by the way, everyone's got nukes, but we sort of have just forgotten about that, that inconvenient fact. 
And that should scare us. It scares me. Uh, it should absolutely scare us. Yeah, it does. And actually, uh, I, as again, as someone who doesn't have uh, direct military experience, reading the book, the timeline that we're talking about here, you know, you said it was over the course of six months from uh, the initial interaction to the the escalation. That seems logically plausible to somebody like me who I'd consider like an average American citizen, which is part of the uh, what makes it so scary because it just seems like it's so incredibly possible that it could happen that way. Well, sure. And I think what, you know, what you have to consider too, and this does come up in the book is um, I don't think we're, the one thing that in the cold war was helpful about nuclear weapons was you could envision it. First of all, we'd seen two of them go off. And so you had all the photographs. So we all knew that. Um, and it's just visuals, you know, it's the mushroom cloud. Okay. You know, you know, Joe walking down the street can immediately, yeah, don't want a mushroom cloud. That seems really bad. We <laughs> <That's> bad. Yeah. <laughs> Cyber is really tricky because the amount of devastation, you know, that, you know, right now we're also in sort of a cyber cold war. We're like, we have the ability to level our adversaries. They have the ability to level us, the ability to wipe out markets, destroy power grids, do it. Like we can basically destroy one another with cyber. But like, what does that look like? You know, there's no mushroom cloud. So I think for our collective consciousness, it's very difficult for us to imagine that. And I only bring it up because you could start to see kind of like a crossing of the streams where, you know, there's a cyber attack that's so like just devastating that whoever gets hit, and this, this really isn't in the book, whoever gets hit has no way to respond and is now incredibly vulnerable. And the only response they is like, I can't respond. My cyber is white, but, but I have my nukes. And now, you know, you're not playing like checkers anymore with just like, you know, I nuke you here, you nuke me there. Like now you're playing like, you know, chess because it's like cyber, it's nukes, it's uh, right. You know, we're, in a, we're in a much more complicated world with very, very uh, lethal uh, kinetic and non-kinetic weapons at our disposal. See, I feel like the whole the, the cyber attack to me is a more real thing nowadays, right? It's happening. We've had That's several right. happen in the past few years. And for our Open generation, life lock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have for many different reasons. Um, but so, like, that's more of a real thing to me nowadays, where we haven't seen a nuke go off. And again, for our generation, it feels like it's something that's just it's there. It's a it's a deterrent. We're not going to use it. Where the cyber attack thing, I mean, we don't hear of us doing it to other countries. I'm sure we are. It's yeah. got to be part of what we're doing, but. It's also one of those things where it's like, I can imagine Russia, for example, you know, they've been, quote unquote, at the hand of a lot of them to, to our knowledge. I can imagine Russia just putting a whole shit ton of people saying, figure this out, and them finding a back door into our power grid and just shutting down the entire country. Right. And I, th I think that might also be something that, especially uh, younger generations who watch this unfold, uh, with that technology in their hand as well. It's it's kind of expected that there's going to be this cyber warfare. And I, I can agree that I think it feels like we are in a cyber cold war, especially with China, uh, because every time we make a technological advancement, it seems like they're either right behind us or right next to us making the same discoveries and advancements. And as I mentioned earlier, I accused Grizz of uh, helping China because... Uh, <laughs> He has a lot of the uh, the new smart technology, which I myself am very uh, I'm nervous about it because it's all so hackable. And if you watch the news in the last two years, you can see that all these other countries are actively hacking into these networks to get into the United States and the networks we have here. Well, I mean, first of all, like you know, the United, yes, we do have the capability. I mean, if you look like the stuck stuck next is when you know us and the Israelis basically destroyed the Iranian nuclear program and set it back a number of years through a cyber attack. We didn't have to bomb them; we just took their nuclear program offline, set it back. Um, but then what becomes tricky is, and you're seeing this with the Russians right now in these ransomware attacks, is <clears throat> this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Like it's you know, it's probably not going to look like World War II. Like it's probably not going to be you know, Pearl Harbor, but, you know, we wake up one Sunday morning and there's Japanese fight or there's Chinese fighter bombers coming over the horizon. Um, I would imagine it's probably going to look a lot like, you know, Russian criminal elements launching ransomware attacks. And so when we go to the Kremlin, hey, well, you know, in Dana, they're like, well, we don't know what's going it's on. We can't us. stop these guys. 
what are you talking about? You know, the same thing with, you know, with, and with China, this sort of plausible deniability. Um, the, you know, the idea that, you know, what we did, like, for instance, what we just saw in Hong Kong, right? Had, you know, the Chinese reacquired Hong Kong by, you know, sending tank divisions into the streets and commando raids and killing, you know, you probably would have elicited a much more different response. But instead, it was just sort of this very low simmering erosion where the temperature never got so high that the United States or really anyone else would be able to uh, go with cause to the United Nations or galvanize domestic political support to intervene. And then suddenly, you know, we wake up and like, wait, what? Oh, what? Hong Kong's just part of China now? Okay. You know, what about like Taiwan? You know, and like things in the book play out their own way in Taiwan. But I think there's also a great case to be made that, you know, the way Taiwan comes back to China is it's just very slowly, you know, like I, I would, yes. you know, you're not going to see like a, an, an invading army on landing craft zipping across the Taiwan Straits from China. You know, you're just going to kind of see a series of incidents that escalated, escalated. Always the temperature stays, never, never crosses that threshold where you're going to see an international response. Then we just sort of all blink your eyes and like, oh, wait. Oh, wow. I guess I guess Taiwan's part of China again. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, because, you know, a lot of people, their their idea of war, like you said, is D-Day. But I think what we're going to look at look at coming uh, our way in the future, if we end up in a situation like that, is going to be a lot quieter. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a very quiet descent into what will eventually be, uh, you know, we'll be in the middle of something when we realize something happened. Yeah, it's the frog in the pot, you know, you just put exactly. the frog in the water, turn up the, you know, you don't, you don't throw the frog into boiling water. So, And I think a big part of that is like, it seems like the American government doesn't want to really touch the whole China thing unless it comes to Taiwan. You know, if they cross that, that if there's a very physical line that they cross there, being Taiwan, all of a sudden, all right, you know, the gloves are off. But in what you're saying, where they're just slowly, you know, and this isn't part of the book, but, it, you know, it's a slow takeover. All of a sudden, next thing we know, you know, Taiwan's part of China, and now we have to worry about where our chips are made. Well, and here's the thing, too. I mean, even if it were a kind of a more of a kinetic invasion, um, there was a, a poll Pew just put out, um, you know, if if Taiwan were invaded by China, does the United States have an obligation to do something? And 60% of Americans said no. So, um, yeah, which isn't I mean, surprising to me. <laughs> it's not surprising to me, but at the same time, I don't know that the American public has any clue of what's good for the American country. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm not saying that that should inform what we necessarily do. I'm more making the point that, you know, politicians look at those polls to decide what they can, what they oh, can absolutely. are politically able to get away with. And so I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, the, the, you know, the Polipero central community saw, saw that poll and was like, all right, you know, like we've got, we've got some wiggle room here, but I think they get to a larger point, which is, you know, we're talking about all of this, you know, but the, you know, the elephant in the room is like, you know, the house is not really in order in the United States right now. Like we're not doing too great domestically. You know, we got lots of problems. Um, you know, I, for one, I don't know about you guys, but sort of like pre pandemic, I can't tell you how many, you know, like just having dinner with friends or a drink with friends time, like in a conversation, um, as things were just, you know, and I'm not saying this in a partisan way, but like, you know, just things were dysfunctional, however. Oh, you yeah. Know. Yeah. And people are, you know, Absolutely. and uh, we'd say like, man, like, I wonder, I wonder if there was like a 9-11 happened right now. Like if we'd be able, if we kind of like get our act together and be able to, you know, come together as a nation as we did after 9-11. Cause um, you know, I remember what, I remember that, you know, and the whole country kind of, we all came together and, um, and then the pandemic happened. And like, <clears throat> I don't think anyone's going to look back at 2020 and say that this global pandemic in which 600,000 Americans died was a moment of national unity where we all came together to fight it. I think we have been, it was a year that was as divided as any in our nation's history. So the question kind of, you know, kind of becomes, are we able to do that again? And like, listen, one of the great things about America, right, is like, we are diverse, we're different, we're all, I like to say, like, you know, like as a nation, like, we're like jazz hands, right? We're like, we're, <laughs> we're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And like, and that's great. But like, eventually, if you go into a fight, you can't be jazz hands, you got to like form two fists. And if we lose our ability to form two fists when we need to do it, um, then you know, you are gonna get clocked right in the nose. And I wonder if we're able to still kind of go from jazz hands to fists. I, I agree with you. And I think one of the, the things one of the reasons that we had such a, uh, you know, 
a split house in 2020 is the fact that we didn't have a common enemy, right? Like COVID wasn't an enemy that we could actually do anything about for the most part, right? You just hunker down and sit in your houses. And as Americans, we're not good at that. But if you have, if we have a common enemy, and in this case, it was China, I'd like to believe and I, I believe it at my heart that yeah, you'd see us come together like an instance like 9-11, where all of a sudden out of the woodwork, you have people coming from all ilks of life to do what needs to be done. Right? That's my belief. Yeah, listen, maybe I, I hope it's true. I just feel like at no and I, I and I don't know, it's all speculation. I have just at no other time in my life has I been have I been as concerned that like what if like what if we can't do that? Oh, right uh, now it's hard to see that. It's like it's tough to see. Like I'm with you. I think like, you know, I hope we can do it. Um, or what if our adversary is clever enough to know that that's the one thing they need to never give us? Because if, yep. they, they, if it ever crosses that threshold and we get it together, then you know they they could be stymied in, in whatever their objective is. But if they can kind of keep their aims diffuse and keep us from and keep us kind of squabbling one another, then you know they can do whatever they want to do. Uh, if they keep playing the the misinformation with elect uh, with elections, uh, yeah, they've got that one all day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Way too many people are going to social media for news nowadays, and it's not good. Yeah, I actually uh, I share that uh, that kind of experience with you, Elliot, where over the last few years, really like the last 10 years, I've, I've watched it increase in uh, intensity where people with two opposing ideas are not able to meet in the middle anymore. And that has now spread to Congress. And it, so it's gotten to the point where it's on a national scale. And I think that technology that uh, that we have available to us is a big player in how we got to where we are. And places like China, they know that. And they've been playing on that for at least the last couple of years, more than likely longer than that. Yeah. And why, and again, why wouldn't they, you know, right. ultimately, ultimately like democracies sort of only, you know, democracies have to have a shared truth. You know, <clears throat> they, I mean, you can have dissent, you can have people arguing it, but like, if, if you're just, you know, as we're increasingly becoming, just people are, are existing in totally divergent realities. And again, I'm not saying that like one or like neither of the realities are really, a true render, you know, but we're just out there, it becomes very difficult to have a democracy because ultimately like there has to be a shared truth that everyone is organized around. Um, and, I, and I'm certain our adversaries are smart enough to see this and oh, they're, they're playing pushing that. that button all day long now. And th that's one thing that worries me now, you know, if you look at back at uh, say the sixties with, you know, the CIA, they were able to kind of do whatever the hell they wanted where nowadays, their hands are tied in a lot of ways, or at least that the public knows. That can't be helping us when it comes to, you know, foreign foreign affairs in any light. Well, it's just so diffuse, right? I mean, listen, you know, if we look like, 50, you know, in the 60s, you know, how, you know, if, you know, there are only so many kind of organs of power. You know, they say, they call it their Wurlitzer machine. They would just like play the machine. And like, that's great when there's like maybe a dozen machines out there and you've got one of them. I mean, now there's like you know, millions of machines. So, you know, it, it's very difficult to, to, you know, to push a united message. And I think with, with our adversaries, sort of all they need to do is just sort of sprinkle a little doubt in the mix. And, you know, we do the rest of the work for them. Yeah, it almost makes me wonder. And I think, um, I think your co-author had brought it up at some point, you know, we just made, Trump made the Space Force but realistically, what we should have made was a cyber force. And yeah. it just something that is constantly working, being able to be that next step ahead of the of the adversary, right? Yeah. To where we can push their buttons or at least push their buttons to where we need to. And I don't think we're there, but, you know. Yeah, I think he would say, you know, he would say like he agrees with the Space Force. He just thinks there's also needs to be a cyber force. Yes, agree. Yeah, that we're kind of behind the power curve on that so um yeah i mean listen it's it, it, it i just think we're at a moment where 20th century thinking is not going to get us there um and there's maybe too much 20th century thinking that's been going that's going on right now with regards to our national defense right and uh so when we're talking about your book, which deals heavily in uh, this kind of uh, situation that we're talking about here i want to point out to people that are going to go and read it that you got to keep in mind this is fiction but it does have a lot of parallels to the reality that we're living now. And so that got me wondering how much of this book, when you 
you wrote it with your uh, your co-author how much of it was based on the reality that you've experienced especially as it relates to your military experience certainly well i think listen there's first of all when you're drawing characters right like the characters are always a little bit of you you know you're like pulling right. from your own experiences you're pulling from things you know um so there's um you know so i could point to you like little 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 details in each of these characters backstories that are sort of you know nods to something that happened to me or something that's happened to jim that kind of come into the story and i think the story is also sort of informed by our mutual understandings of just sort of war and the nature of war um the you know experiences that we've had kind of you know being in rooms where policy is being made and discussed you know uh, Jim has a saying he likes to say, which is, which is, uh, you know, big doors swing on small hinges, which I think is very true. You know, they're, they're like, there's scenes in the, in the book, I don't think I'm giving anything away where, um, you know, where one character is literally like trying to get into the white, you know, into the Oval Office and another character is blocking and be like, you're not going in there. And, uh, you know, and, you know, sometimes like that's what it comes down to. Like, can you get the document on the decision maker's desk in the entire, you know, the entire enterprise uh, rides on a person's ability to get the right document in front of the right person. So we wanted there to be a heavy component of that. And so that is, I think, just, you know, so that's all just our experience of, you know, kind of how these, how these conflicts play out and how one that we sort of invented might play out based off of that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think that that shows too, in the, the way that you wrote it. Uh, so beyond things like uh, your experiences and integrating kind of a little bit of what your life was like into this book, uh, was there, was it really research intense to kind of get a lot of this information together in a coherent way? Or were, did you kind of have enough with your experience? Um, you know, I, I think all writers approach their research a little bit differently. Um, you know, there's some writers I know who are like, they're, they'll say like, I'm researching my book now is they'll like, like they're going to a library for nine months. And <laughs> at the end of them, it's like the research is done. And they go and they write the book. I've sort of never worked that way. Right. And I like have an idea of what I think something's about where it's going. You know, I feel like I've got enough to get start. I'll get started and I'll write. And when I get to a point where I'm like writing and I'm like, I don't really know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> I need to like become smarter to actually like feel like I'm doing a decent job. I'll like maybe stop and like, okay, well, let me really, really, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Or, you know, or I'll be doing it contemporaneously. So I think there was, um, so you know, there was some of that in this book, um, you know, and then, yeah, but then certainly like, you know, both of us obviously have an ability to draw on military experiences. Um, so, you know, hopefully you can like, you know, feel uh, you know, like there's one of the key characters, Wedge is a Marine fighter pilot, you know, like I know many Marine fighter pilots, you know, have served with them. Uh, so it wasn't that hard for me to kind of pluck and tease little details uh, in Wedge's backstory. Um, and obviously, you know, the Admiral has, you know, led destroyers and carrier battle groups and all of that. So it wasn't hard for him to kind of pluck some of the, the nice little details there that hopefully make it, make it feel real. And, you know, and I've also, and I've also spent time at sea. Um, right. Exactly like the book opens, the opening image of the book is this one, uh, one of the key characters, Commodore Sarah Hunt, looking out at the ocean. It's totally still. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have ever been at sea, but um, yeah. yeah, first time I was at sea, I actually saw that uh, that phenomenon, like to be on literally on the open ocean and there's not like a single wave. And it, I mean, it's totally overwhelming. It was for me the first time I saw it, just this like tabletop of water as far as the eye can see and then to be on a, like a huge warship that's like cutting away through that you know it's pretty profound so um so i don't know is that research i don't know but it's like you know it, it's like an image that kind of comes to you of how you want to start a book so one thing uh that has been near and dear to me and probably jerry at this point that we're starting to see in like uh you know that military complex you're starting to see a lot of stuff like the f-35 the Ford carrier where we're getting new gear that doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> Did that take any part into, into the book at all? Yeah. I mean a little, yeah, yes, it's certainly in the book, you know, I mean, and like wedge, I mean, when they opening, when you meet wedge, he is flying an F 35 yeah. and he is a fourth generation Marine fighter pilot. So his dad flew in Iraq and Afghanistan his grandfather flew flying snake and nape in Vietnam, and his great grandfather flew off the wing of like uh, Pappy Boynton, the greatest Marine fighter ace who ever lived. 
and like Wedge is lamenting the fact as he's flying this F-35, he's like, I don't really feel like a pilot. I just feel yeah. like a computer programmer, you know, because this thing basically flies itself, you know, and then his cockpit gets hacked and like literally the plane starts flying itself and he can't do anything where then you see him, he's like banging on the plane. He like at one point actually takes out a surface. He's like actually shooting controls, it. Yeah. Hoping that it'll shut everything down and then he can fly it stick and rudder. So, um, so there's that sort of like refrain of like, you know, the technology like can become your enemy at times. And certainly and, and Wedge is a character like carries, uh, he carries a lot of that water in the book. He's sort of this like, you know, his call sign, a wedge is the world's oldest and simplest tool. And, you know, in order to sort of win this 21st century war at certain moments, it takes combining like state-of-the-art technology and cyber and all this, but also like going to the shelf and like blowing the dust off this like old tool, you know, that hasn't changed since his, you know, which is wedge. And he really hasn't changed. He's just another version of his granddad who used to fly with Pappy Boynton in the South Pacific. Yeah, he and, definitely has that old school feel to him. Yeah. And I'll just tell the story here. It's in the book. But I, I love this anecdote. And it was actually, it was a recommended uh, a buddy of mine who was an F-18 pilot. I mean, he still is an F-18 pilot. Told me at one point that I needed to read the biography of, uh, Pappy Boynton, it's called Baba Black Sheep because he led the famous Black Sheep Fighter Squadron in World War II. But there's actually a TV show made about the Black Sheep Squadron in the 1950s. But in that biography, and Wedge tells a story in the book, the guys who flew with Pappy in the South Pacific, they would say, you know, when you were flying with Pappy, you always had to do two things. You would like watch your horizon for the Japanese zeros, but you would always watch, you would also watch Pappy because Pappy would be sitting there and he'd be leaning over uh, his controls smoking a cigarette, looking at the horizon. And then when you would see Pappy take his cigarette, throw it out of his canopy and then slam the canopy shut, you always knew you were about to see a bunch of Japanese zeros because he would see them like two or three seconds before anybody else would. And, you know, just like that idea of like, that's how we used to do it. You know, it's like so visceral, like a guy patrolling over the, the same oceans that are in this book, um, you know, with a, with a cigarette in an open canopy. Um, to the F-35 and trying to kind of bridge that divide uh, is, you know, is very much sort of, you know, something that's in the book is something that I'm interested in because like war again, and we talked about this, like it's this timeless thing. Like it's the same game, man. It doesn't matter if you have an F-35 or a fourth carrier. It's the same thing at the end of the day. You know, what's the technology? How are you going to be smarter than your adversary? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, well, it's interesting you bring up Wedge um, because uh, I, I like him as a character. Do you think that, you know, even though you identify with all the characters, this one might be a little closer to home for you because uh, he's a commanding officer of an attack squadron? No, not really. Like another character no? I really identify with is is, uh, is Farshad, you know, and he's like the consummate forever warrior, you know, fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, I mean, everywhere. And he's at the end of his career and he's just sort of tired. Um, you know, he, he fought in all the wars I fought and he just fought on the opposite side. So, um, so I really identify with Farshad and he's kind of home from the wars. And he's like, you know, when you meet him at the beginning of the book, he's sort of, you know, he's kind of, you see him lose his job basically. And he's kind of like, now what am I going to do with my life? You know? And, um, uh, you know, you see him in the garden, in his garden, kind of pondering this in, you know, the second chapter of the book. And I'll just say that's one thing. He does something really horrible to a squirrel who bothers him. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, so I identify with Farshad too. You know, I didn't, like, I identify with all of them in different ways. Um, I identify with Chowdhury. like, I worked, you know, in the federal government <clears throat> and sort of like this, the, the horrible, like soul sucking anonymity of going to those jobs, you know, as a federal employee every day. Um, and you can kind of feel that with Chowdhury. And, you know, and Ch I'm divorced, Chowdhury's divorced too. So um, there's scenes with him kind of, you know, balancing his work and his, you know, being a father and all of that that I identify with a lot. So, so it's really tough when you like, when you get to characters, it's like asking which one of your kids do you, you know, do you love the most? Because <laughs> you're, you know, you're putting a lot of yourself into each of them. Realistically, what was the hardest one to do? Oh, I don't know. Like, seriously, I'm not, I'm not being coy. I don't think there's one that's like, that was the hardest necessarily to do. Um, yeah, I don't know. Listen, I, I, uh, I enjoy writing books, so I, I don't, I don't find it like a, I, I didn't find any of these characters kind of a chore. Um, I think that there was, you know, one of the conundrums of the book, which I sort of 
alluded to was as it started, we didn't know how it was going to finish. And I knew there was a while where I knew, well, if it just finished it, like, oh, and guess what? America wins, or oh, guess what? China wins. Like that kind of wouldn't be, it wouldn't be satisfying and it wouldn't sort of, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't tell the type of story we were trying to tell. So I think we had to figure out, you know, the ending as it existed. So sometimes it's unnerving when you're working on something and you don't really know. It's like you're flying the plane, and you don't know how you're going to land it yet. You're just kind of like assuming you'll be able to land it when the time comes. Yeah. What's interesting about that too, is that I think if something like that were to happen in real life, short of total annihilation of one country, it's probably pretty likely that there wouldn't really be a definitive winner in a situation like that. Well, and furthermore, you start fighting wars like that, like other nations and you see this start to speak up like, Hey, uh, like, you know, if someone were to like nuke all of the continental United States, like I assure you, Canada would have something to say about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's not, you know, in this case, it's not Canada, but like, you know, we don't, the last time nuclear weapons were employed, the world was a much larger place than it is today. It's very small today. And our actions, you know, all affect one another much more profoundly because we're, you know, as we just saw with this, you know, as we just saw with COVID, you know, yeah. so. Sorry, Grizz, I know I cut you off there. Did you want to say something? No, I, my, you know me, the brain already went past it. <laughs> all right. All right. Do you have any like future plans coming up? Um, well, my next book is going to be a book that's just one of my books, um, but with regards to, and that comes out in the fall of next year, and then with regards to 2034, we're actually returning into a trilogy, so um, there's going to be a 2054, oh, really? which is a novel, this was a novel of the next World War, 2054 will be a novel of the next Civil War, with a focus on uh, artificial intelligence, biotech, um, and ideas around the uh, the singularity, and then, cool. and then 2074, uh, is going to be about the environment. I'll be dead when that one goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be looking forward to those because the, actually both of those topics are something I'm very heavily interested in. Okay. And Maybe actually just listening to the sound of your title. I know you can't get me started on this. We'll end up talking about the matrix, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but uh, you know, the, just listening to the title that even the topics sound like an appropriate timeline, because this is something Grizz and I go, go on about all the time off the air. Yeah, I think it's, right. it's interesting and to understand how those will, you know, those will affect society uh, going forward. But it's, it's it's fun. We're working on those now. And, and you know, and those books will have, um, you know, almost more of a sci-fi feel to them because you're really getting out there in terms of time. Now, you've got to I've got to imagine you like the idea of being so far out that you can really play with the ideas of, you know, how how America or the world is shaped. You know what I mean? Versus being so so rigid of what this is what we have today versus 50 years out from now, we have no clue what we would have. So it gives you a little bit more freedom. Yeah, I think so. It gives you more freedom and it allows you to uh, kind of, you know, tell stories about the future that also are kind of telling stories about where we are today as well. Um, you know, the books that I've read uh, that, uh, you know, exist in a, you know, a genre, you know, you might call sci-fi or, or, you know, or, you know, oftentimes, you know, they're creating alternate worlds so that we can say more kind of trenchant things about the world uh, that mm -hmm. we're existing in right now. So, um, so, so building a project that way, uh, you know, to me is a, is a lot of fun. Are you good, Chris? All right. Well, uh, I, I personally, and I know Grizz as well, are going to be looking forward to those two books, and I'll be picking them up when they come out. Uh, but until then, uh, where can people find your current works? Uh, they are anywhere good books are sold. But, you know, if you're, if you're interested, I would encourage you to support your local independent bookstore and pick it up there because, you know, it's been, a, it's been a tough year for independent bookstores. It has. I agree. I, I agree. Don't go corporate. Go local. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Elliot, it's been a fantastic time speaking with you, and re we really appreciate you being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was awesome. Thanks, man.